Right, ladies and gentlemen, I think it is time for bow side to hold, stroke side to get in, and to push off onto the river of episode 12 of the Broken Horse podcast. And we've got another one of our interviews today, and quite possibly, I think, one of the most important interviews that we've done. This interview with a incredibly interesting lady called Jen Say. Aaron, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Jen is going to talk to us about today? Jennifer Say is a former US gymnast um, who went through her sports program at an early age, made worlds, was on course for the Olympics, was also suffering horrifically through the program that she was in at the time left that program, went on to carve out a successful career in corporate America with one of the Americana brands of Levi's. She wrote the absolutely fantastic and powerful book, uh, Chalking Up, which is available at all good booksellers, um, which you should read. And she is also the lady responsible with several others through sheer tenacity and refusal to let it drop, which is what is needed in cases like this who broke um, the Larry Nasser and then the subsequent Athlete A film that showed his downfall. We were immensely privileged on our podcast um, when Jen said that she would come on and chat with us. And I have to say that it was powerful, it was redemptive and horrifying all in equal measure. It it was. And... um... One of the things that's left me thinking over the past 24 hours since we recorded that podcast is that I'm enormously grateful to all the people that we've had on the podcast because it has been a very, very expanding and enlightening experience. And uh, I'm, I'm very glad that I've actually started this and that we've been able to, to interact with these people. So a uh, little bit of gratitude there, but I'm going to say... On with the interview. Okay, and welcome back once again to another Broken Oars podcast interview. And with us today, we have, uh, we're very honored to have, in fact, Jen Say, um, live from the United States. Um, And Jen is the producer of the widely regarded Netflix documentary, Athlete A, which looked at the trial um, and all the events leading up to that of Larry Nasser, a predatory paedophile upon whom, or who preyed upon members of the US gymnastics team. Jen, uh, welcome to the podcast and thank you for coming on. Sure, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Jen, very much this is about you. So if you could give us uh, a little bit about your background, who you are, Uh, what you do now, and how you come to be doing what you are doing now. Sure. Um, So I was uh, an elite gymnast in the United States in the 1980s. I'm a seven-time national team member, so I think my first, maybe eight, I don't know, a lot of years, most of the 80s. um, I think first national team I made was 1981, and I was on the national team through 1988, so however many years that is. Um, I was a 1986 national champion, which was sort of a surprise to the entire gymnastics community because just nine months earlier, I had broken my femur at the world championships in Montreal in a very sort of public and um, 
horrifying fashion. And it seemed like a career ending injury at the time. Um, but I, I came back and, and won the U.S. championships less than a year later. Um, that for me was sort of the highlight of my career and also a bit of a turning point in that I really started to fray after that, both emotionally and physically. Um, and it kind of went downhill from there. I won't get into that now, um, but we can we can certainly talk about about that. Um, I left the sport in 1988, just before the Olympic trials. I walked away. Um, make no mistake, I wouldn't have made the team. I was falling apart, as I indicated. My body uh, was falling apart. I was very injured. Had been training on an ankle that I later learned was broken for several years had an eating disorder, was depressed, had all kinds of issues, uh, was kind of at war with my parents. I mean, I just was falling apart. So I walked away, which was a difficult decision, even though I um, saw no real path forward in the sport. It was all I'd ever known. And so it's heartbreaking nonetheless, you know, even if you feel like I can't go forward um, any longer doing this, to kind of walk away from the only thing you've ever known and loved is, is incredibly difficult. Um, but I moved on and I went to college. I went to Stanford University and I sort of tried my hardest to become a normal person, but that's a very difficult transition. Um, as much as you want that, you don't necessarily know how to do it. But I always knew I wanted a life outside the sport. And so that's what I pursued. And I, um, I did that and I, I've worked at Levi's, the jeans, the world famous jeans company for uh, over 21 years. I'm now the, the brand president of Levi's as of just actually a couple weeks ago. That was just announced. Um, Congratulations. But, Congratulations. Thank you. But somewhere along the line, you know, the gymnastics um, culture continued to haunt me and I struggled, you know, with self-esteem. Um, and depression and all sorts of things and just sort of understanding who I was and what I wanted without that identity. And I wasn't that connected to the sport and the community. And yet I still had had this pull, you know, you, it's all you do as a child. It's like it informs your idea of yourself. Um, but I really struggled because I, you know, for four years trained in a very emotionally abusive coaching culture. Um, and the long-term impacts of that are, are far-reaching. And so at some point, I think in my late 30s, I decided to write a book, which I don't know why one does that, but that's what I decided I wanted to do. Um, and I, you know, had these sort of dreams of being a writer, and I'd been writing for many years in all kinds of forms, but I just felt like this could be a really powerful story, a coming-of-age story, essentially, that laid bare the the training environment, and then more importantly, the path to kind of recover from that, if you will. Um, that's the coming of age part. And I felt like if I could write something that was a peek inside this world that not many know, that would be intriguing. But if I could make it broadly relatable in, you know, in making it a coming of age story, because we all at a certain have to, at a certain point, we all have to define for ourselves the person we want to be. And that's very difficult, I think, when you grow up in an environment telling you that you're shit, basically, <laughs> you know, how do you sort of define for yourself? So I wrote it, you know, not thinking that it would start a revolution or, or anything, but it was, I'm not even thinking it would get published. Honestly, I kind of wrote it for myself and that was published in 2008. It was called, is called Chalked Up, but it kind of put me at the forefront of, of, people being willing to kind of speak out about the culture. And it was, there was a tremendous amount of backlash at the time. It was a very difficult time because I was maligned and 
demeaned and degraded yet again. Um, but I kind of pushed onward and the more criticism I got, the more I knew that that's what needed to be said. And then when the Nasser case broke, um, you know, as someone that had spoken out early and often, I was someone that these young women trusted and I met many of them um, and ended up sort of having this idea for Athlete A that we could tell this story of the Nasser case, but connect it to the broader culture of abuse. And so I pitched that to some directors that I met, um, Bonnie Cohen and John Shank. I took my little PowerPoint and I <laughs> pitched them. And at first they were hesitant. They'd just completed a film on teenage sexual assault and that was very harrowing for them. And they said, no, this is great, but no thank you. But I kept bothering them. And eventually they decided to do it. And I, you know, I was able to bring these young women to the table because they trusted me. and the lawyer, John Manley, and the prosecutor, Angie Povolitis. These are people I got to know over the course of the case, the investigation and the case. And so that's the story of Athlete A. I'm one of three producers, but that was my role in it, you know, sort of crafting the overarching story. I was very intent to connect it to the broader culture of abuse and not just make it about Nasser, because I think that's the that's what's happening now, right? And so I'm proud of that. But there were two other producers on it as well with different roles. Wow. I mean, there is so much to unpick there. Loon, would you like to go first? One question I wanted to ask straight off the bat is you use this term, the culture of abuse. And and do you think that this is systemic within the sport of gymnastics? A thousand percent. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Both myself and Aaron, we, we have young daughters and my son also go to gymnastics that's not something I've ever seen. I mean, how, how far up the kind of performance pyramid or how far yeah. down does it stretch? Well, I think it's a mistake to, and that's not to say it's every gym. I mean, I had a really lovely, amazing coach um, from the time I was about nine until I was 13 and she's everything you would want in a coach. And she took me to the elite level. You know, I qualified for elite, which is the level you compete to be on the national team. It's the highest level. Um, so she was an outstanding coach, but more importantly, she she coached the whole athlete and the whole person, and her goal was really to raise strong young women. Um, I decided that wasn't good enough for me, and I left and went to another gym who had you know, trained Olympians and national team members and national champions, and they gave me what I wanted, and they gave me a lot of what I didn't want to, and so you know, I, I think it's pretty, I do think it's widespread. It's more widespread internationally than even I've known, I had known. And I say that having learned, um, you know, since Athlete Day came out and the, the sort of push of all these athletes telling their stories in social media using the hashtag Gymnast Alliance. I've gotten to know athletes in the UK, um, in Australia, um, in the Netherlands, um, in Canada. I mean, it's kind of remarkable. There's stories from all around the world and frankly from other sports as well. There's another tag gym, uh, athlete alliance that's being used. I've heard from ice skaters, um, track and field. So, but I do think in gymnastics, it is pretty widespread. It is so sort of commonly accepted that it's just considered coaching, you know? And so that's the challenge. I think that's the first battle is to make it not invisible. Um, because when it's everywhere, you can't even see it. You just, you know, parents, everybody, they're brainwashed into thinking, well, that's just tough coaching. Now, I'm not surprised that you would say you're in a gym and you haven't seen that. There are great gyms out there. There are gyms that treat the whole child. Um, 
Dominique Dawes, who's a three-time Olympian uh, for the United States, runs a gym of her own. And I think her philosophy is just that, treat the whole child, coach the whole child. Um, but it's all too uncommon. And I, I think the leadership at USAG would have us believe, well, it's just a problem at the elite level. And I will tell you that's not true. That's false. Um, a lot of the athletes that have come forward never made the elite level. They're level sevens and eights and nines, which is the tiering system in the US. Um, many never made national team, never made elite. And I can also tell you from my personal experience in my gym, my coaches coach everyone from level five to elite the same way. You know, they don't, I call them my coaches, it's 30 years ago at this point, but you, you take my point. You know, they are screaming and berating and belittling a seven-year-old in exactly the same manner that they are berating, belittling, weighing in and fat shaming, you know, a 14 year old who's a member of the national team. They don't sort of reserve it for the best athletes. It's just what they do. So it's all levels. I, I couldn't say, you know, what percentage, but clearly far more widespread than anyone wanted to believe um, because we're hearing from so many athletes from so many respected clubs across the world. We had a chat with a with a, a researcher called uh, Tristan McLaughlin, who is looking at athlete welfare in systems in, in high performance systems in the UK, and we discussed with him the idea that perhaps coaching cultures attract they attract wonderful people who are very selfless and put a lot of time and energy into the sport and treat and treat the whole athlete or the whole child, but there may be it may be appealing for individuals with a certain predatory or abusive bent to um, be able to control groups of individuals in this way. Would, would you think that was a fair comment in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think there's several sort of facets to what you just said. You know, I think if we think about what many would consider the worst kind of abuse, sexual abuse, although I would say that the emotional and physical abuse is equally um, sort of grave in its impacts, but if we take the clearly illegal, you know, sexual abuse, I do think that there are pedophiles that are drawn to the sport because they will have access to children. Um, I believe, you know, Larry Nasser constructed his life around that access um, in, in a sense, right? Um, so that's the sort of worst case scenario. <laughs> um, and then I think you're right. There are people that have a what was the word you used? Sort of a authoritarian nature um, that could in fact be drawn to this kind of arena of sport because of, you know, they have a sense of control and power when it comes to these kids in particular. But I think more common than that, frankly, is, you know, outside of sexual abuse, I think that the, the sort of the standard set, the established coaching methodology is cruel. Um, and so even if you come into it as a well-meaning person, you lose sight of kind of what's normal and what's not. And I've talked to a lot of coaches about this. You know, you just lose sight of it, right? Like the standard gets lowered and there's a lot of pressure to coach that way, to be accepted among this top tier of coaches. And I've talked to many coaches who had kids on the national team and when they would go to the Crowley Ranch, they they felt like they had to be meaner to their athlete than they would normally be so that they could be in the good graces of, you know, USAG and the Corollis because that's the accepted methodology. Or they see that these successful coaches behave that way and so they adopt some of these practices. It's like behaviors become normalized with time, you know, and I, I do think some with the very best intentions 
morph over time because the standards are so poor <laughs> and it takes intense kind of confidence and moral clarity to fight that when that is the direction that you get pulled in. What you're describing is as, as a, a really kind of aggressive and negative coaching culture. That obviously seems like it goes against a lot of things. I, I work in a school, I, I teach, and that leads to the fact that I've coached sports. And yes. one of the things that I got told when I did my level two coaching qualification, which is like, it's really kind of an entry level thing, is if you make a child cry at any point during your coaching, you've done something wrong. Well, first, let me say that's very good advice that they're giving you. I think that's true. And I think, and I've often used this example, but, you know, as a teacher outside of your coaching accountabilities, you know, it's sort of unthinkable if you have a child in your class, a young child who's struggling to learn, let's say, to read, right? So you have a six-year-old who's maybe struggling. It's unthinkable that the appropriate approach might be to scream and yell at that child and call them stupid, and to throw things and to say, I don't teach stupid children, you're not even trying, get it together. That, that's ludicrous, right, on its face. That's not a way to get that child engaged, um, to believe that she can learn to read, to build her confidence, to build her engagement. Um, but that is exactly how six and seven and eight-year-olds are coached in gymnastics. Um, and what's sort of what I will never understand is why do we think that isn't appropriate in a learning environment or in a amateur sort of coaching environment, recreational, but that it's effective for talented children? Because that's what some would tell you is, well, these kids are good. Well, they're still children, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, you know, that's not the environment that anyone learns in. Adults don't learn in that environment either. I have a very large team of people that I'm responsible for. I don't ever scream at them and tell them they're stupid. I mean, I'd get fired, but beyond, beyond that, I also wouldn't get the best out of people. You know, I wouldn't help them learn. And so, you know, what it comes down to is these people have no education in child development like you've had. None. Anyone can become a coach in America. I don't know about other countries, but in America, anyone can say, I'm going to be a gymnastics coach and open a gym. And they have to take some sort of rote online class, which is just ticking boxes to get their accreditation. And I don't even think, I think that's relatively new. Um, I mean, my coaches, the ones that I describe as abusive, I think set up shop in the early seventies. They weren't gymnasts. They had no child development education, they weren't social workers, they knew nothing of kids. And they just started coaching when gymnastics was sort of booming in the 70s, you know, Nadia okay. and all of this. Um, and that was the methodology. And I would say it was even harsher in the 70s. I mean, I'd go so far as to say I knew coaches who were hitting kids in the 70s. I mean, this is when children were still hitting schools, right, in Catholic yeah. schools. And the, um, so, I think in their minds, well, we don't hit them, so what are you complaining about? It's not that bad. But there's just no concern for the child's development, the child's emotional development, the child's well-being. It's just what can I extract from this child? How can I beat this child down enough that I can control them and get what I need from them? That's the mindset, although I don't think any coach would say it that way. And if you go on these websites for the teams, they all write the flowery, lang flowery language about child development, but not they don't live it. They don't okay. live it. Can I ask, Jennifer, as, as Lewin said, I, I have two daughters. My, my eldest has a very 
she's passionate about gymnastics. She's constantly practicing it. She loves it. It's like a, it's like an expression of inner personality. When you were growing up as a child, did you have a similar, a similarly idealistic, I would like to win a gold medal. And then once you started to progress, was there ever a point where there became a tension between your idealism and I, I would love to do this, but what I, I'm not comfortable with what I'm being asked to do? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I would say I'm unique in that I never started the sport with sort of gold medals in my sights or in my eyes. Like I just did it because I loved it. I loved it. I was just enamored. I loved it. It, it. There's nothing more fun. It was so much fun flipping around. You're flying through the air. I loved dance. I loved performing. I loved all of it. And so I didn't, you know, I know some kids say this, some young women say this, like I saw so-and-so and I wanted a gold medal. I really, that was never sort of in my frame of reference. And I always was exceeding my own expectations as I started to compete and perform. But even then I never set these lofty goals. It was like, I always was just sort of setting a goal one step ahead, not 10 years ahead, you know, oh, I hope I go to the state meet. Oh, maybe I'll go to, you know, semi-nationals. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll qualify for class one. Maybe I could qualify for elite. And it wasn't until I was already an elite athlete and a member of the national team, but in like the top 10 or 12 juniors in the country that I said, you know what, I'd like to get to the top tier and be in the top six, but I still wasn't in my mind going, I want to be in the Olympics. Like I, I, I don't know that I didn't care or I, I just was sort of, I, I do the same. I, I, I think it's just unusual that I do that. Like I do it in my career as well. Like I'm always only thinking about what is the work that I love to do. And then after I do it well, I look up and I say, oh, maybe I could get that other job. But I don't, I didn't enter the business world wanting to be a CEO, for instance. So, um, but at a certain point I was successful and then all of a sudden everybody else has this expectation of you, you know, and it's 1986 and you're the national champion or I am the national champion and I've been on a national team for X number of years and gone to a world and I'm two years away from the Olympics and suddenly that's in everybody's view. In the meantime, I also am suffering from an eating disorder and a broken ankle and all of these other afflictions and I've had many severe injuries and really starting to kind of unwind <laughs> in a sense. And so that's when the tension you describe kicks in. And, and I think the thing is, it's unfathomable for most people how difficult this is. Like, I try to tell people that I work with even, like, I will never work that hard again. Like, there's just nothing that compares to it. Training six, eight, ten hours a day on no food and broken bones. I mean, can you imagine anything that hard that you would ever have to do unless you were being held hostage. There's just nothing, you know, like I get to eat every day. So even if I have a hard spot at work, it's like, I've got a team and we support each other. And, and at a certain point that just wears on you, as you can imagine. And if you're being berated and belittled and name called the whole time, you start to come apart. Any normal person would start to come apart. And I think the ones who say they didn't haven't sort of accepted <laughs> to some extent how that's impacted their psyche, you know? Um, and so it was at that point, and while I was only two years out from the Olympics in 86, two years training like that is an eternity, you know? And it was a year after I would graduate from high school, which is when I would normally go to college. So it meant staying out of college a year. Like it was just fraught. 
Um, and I, uh, so yes, at that point, but at that point, then everybody's invested in you being the one that goes. And I was like, I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't care anymore. I just went out. So that became the tension, you know, between 1986 and 1988 with my parents, um, with my coaches, with my entire family, which was like, you're so close. Why leave now? And I was sort of begging to be seen as this person that was just completely unraveling, you know, um, and they couldn't see it because in their minds, they're like, what? It's one more year. Just keep going, you know, and I, I couldn't. And at a certain point, I claimed my life back and I said, I'm done. And it was really difficult. I mean, my mother didn't talk to me for several years, you know, nobody understood it. Um, but that's why I say the book was a coming of age story because, you know, at a certain point you have to decide what your life is going to be and who you're going to be. And it's not necessarily what other people think you should be. Yeah. yeah it's just at the moment she, she's only eight. So she had, but she has such joy in it. She, just it's, it's just, yeah. And I, I, I got a lot out of sport. I got friends like Lou and I got achievements I'm really proud of. I got experiences that I still remember fondly. You know, my training was nowhere near what an elite athlete would do. Um, I wanted to retain that joy throughout whatever she does. And the thought of entering a system that will choke that out of her in a way is, is quite scary as a parent. Well, it's not scary. It's terrifying. Yeah, but I think, you know what? I think you have... I think you, if you're thoughtful about it and you see that and you know it and that's your goal, then you can make sure that that happens. I honestly believe that. I think, you know, my parents, it was many years ago, they didn't know what was going on. You know, they weren't a lot of people, a lot of people want to blame the parents, but they're sort of suckered into the same mindset. Um, and I wasn't sharing with them what was happening because I, even as it got more difficult, I really, really loved it and wanted to keep going. And I was afraid if I told them what was going on, one, I would fall apart on the spot, and two, they would pull me out. Um, and I wanted to keep going until I until I didn't. And, you know, in a sense, this last club that I went to that was really abusive, you know, it was astonishingly so. And I, I, I did feel like at that point is when I sort of saw that what was possible, like I could – you know, I made worlds at that team. I could potentially make the Olympics. And I felt if I handed myself over to them entirely and just did what they said, I didn't have to think anymore. I just had to do what they said, that that would happen. And no, you can't ever do that. You never hand your life over to somebody else. You know, even as a child, you know, you trust your parents to take good care with your life. But you always, and that's, I think, the job as a parent is, helping a child figure out what they want and what they love and always asking questions. We were never asked questions. It was do this. It's very militaristic. You know, um, I was talking to a coach recently, Amy Borman, who coached Simone Biles um, to the 16 Olympics. And she's such a thoughtful coach. And she told me how she always asked Simone, what do you want to do every day? What do you want to do today? How does your body feel? And it made me, it choked me up. Like I, I didn't realize until that moment that no one ever asked me. No one ever asked me a single question. And so that's very difficult then as you become an adult and you have to figure out what you want to do for yourself because you haven't been taught to think for yourself and about what you want, you know. The people who were coaching you during this time, after the age of 13, so am I right in saying that's between 83 and 87? What, it, it seems like they obviously had a reputation as 
coaches who could make or, or create result. Um, and and this, is, this is something that I'm kind of personally very interested in. Were they actually those coaches who could make results or were they just lucky enough to have the athletes yeah, it's a good question. I don't know that, that it's a knowable answer in a sense. I mean, back then there were sort of three top clubs in the country. You know, it's a little different than now where you have it a little bit more dispersed. There were three great clubs that had the bulk of the national team members. There was always an errant one here or there from some random club, but the three clubs were mine, which was called is called Parquets. There was one in Southern California called Scats, and then there was the Carolis, who opened their gym in the early 1980s. And I looked at all of them and landed on Parquets mostly because it was closest to my home, so I could see my family on the weekends. Um, you know, the Parquets was sort of known, which is the one I chose, as the like least technical. You know, they were fast and loose and they just drove you hard, but not so technically excellent. Scats was known as very technically disciplined. He was Don Peters, who's since been banned for sexual assault, for rape, was the national team coach at the time also, and was known as sort of the thoughtful coach. Ironic, right? Now that we know what he's done. And then you had the Carolis who brought the sort of Eastern European style here. And, you know, I would argue not that different than mine and that sort of not all that technical, just really, really hard driving and possibly even more cruel um, and, you know, more aggressive, although I think it's arguable. My coaches were also known for being very harsh about food and weigh-ins and denying kids food. I mean, they used to sneak, you know, our friends would sneak us food at competitions because they knew we weren't really allowed to eat anything. So those were the three choices. So when I say it was sort of standardized as, you know, abuse was standard, that wasn't considered abuse. Three out of three, 100% of the top clubs in the country coached this way. So it was, I was the problem if I had a hard time with it, not them. That's the way it was done. So whether or not they were great or not, I don't know. Maybe they just drew all the best athletes because they wanted to go there. But at the end of the day, these three clubs got the best results, you know, right. meaning they had the most kids on the national team. I mean, so to sort of move on from that kind of, or, or to sort of lead on from that culture idea, something that I found very, very memorable in the athlete A, in the film itself, was this idea that, Larry Nasser, who was this really quite shockingly evil man, he was seen as the confident and the... He, he was the guy you went to to make you feel better. So is it, is it almost that this culture that you're describing allows a place where a man like Larry Nasser can be seen in this ridiculously positive light by his victims. I mean, I do think that's part of it. There was this like grotesque symbiotic relationship between him and the culture of the sport in a sense, right? He, all those sort of kind behaviors, I put kind in question marks because clearly they weren't, those were grooming behaviors, mm -hmm. right? 
He showed interest in the girls. He gave them food. He gave them candy. He asked about their schoolwork. You know, like I said, no one ever asked me anything. If somebody had shown me that kindness and had acknowledged that my day in the gym had been hard and that my ankle actually did hurt and was injured and it wasn't that I was faking it, you know, I would have been brought into the fold as well. Nobody showed us any kindness. And so, you know, but that was a facade that was, and he knew that by being that person, he could gain their trust. And in a sense, he was nicer to them than these other coaches, which is horrible because obviously he wasn't. So that's what's just so disgusting about the whole dynamic. And he knew he could do that in that environment. And you know, he offered up his services for free. Everybody talked about how gen. Well, he was. It wasn't free. He was getting something, you know. And I, and what he gave USAG and the Carolis and the national team in return was he sent these girls back out injured every time. That's what they wanted. They didn't want any athlete to be sidelined. So he did whatever not real medical treatment he did on them and sent them back out. But they felt like they had a medical treatment and they were abused all the while. So it's this, it's so grotesque and just disgusting. And so many people say, why didn't they come back forward sooner? And it's just of note that, you know, there were many, many girls and young women that came forward back all the way to 1997 and no one believed them. And they said, you're, you are clearly misunderstanding what's happening. Um, people went to the police. You know, it, it's just over and over again, people did call it out and they were told they were the problem. And that's what happens in the sport in general, right? Like if you complain about the mistreatment from a coach, you're the problem, you're not tough enough. And that creates a lot of shame. And that is what makes it very hard coming out of the sport because if you suffer, not only in the sport, but when you come out, then you feel a deep and abiding sense of shame for that because you were the we you were the problem. You were too weak to take it. And they're right about you after all. And so when I sat down to write this book in my late 30s, that's what I was still struggling with, right? Is that I was the failure and they were right all along. It's a problem seen in other forms of abuse. Um, for example, yes. something something like domestic abuse. If somebody comes forward after after five or six years and a, a horrific relationship where they're, they're having very similar things done to them to what you're describing. I don't know how it is in the US, but in the UK, there are documented instances of people coming forward and asking for help and being told that it couldn't possibly be happening. They must be imagining things. There's a, there's a pushback against it. When we talked recently with uh, Tristan, there seems to be a lot of parallels between um, intimate partner violence, domestic abuse, um, the sort of strategies that a, a domestic abuser yeah. would use to, to, to coerce and control the use of gaslighting, the use of reward yeah. and punishment, and all of those things. That's exactly right. And I don't think I understood that literally until my 40s. You know, even as someone that had thought about these things a lot and had written a book, um, but I remember the moment you know, I was in therapy and still struggling. And even though I could say this is what happened, I still felt my, it was my fault, you know, and I had applied that to other areas in my life, you know, and it was always me that was to blame. And my therapist looked at me and he was like, you still don't see it, do you? You, there's nothing you can do. 
you haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing you can do to get this person to engage with you differently. The point is to make you feel bad and to make you feel shame. And the reason you do this is because that's the dynamic and the relationship you had with your coaches. And it is, you know, he explained it to me and it was just this light bulb moment. And he said, you know, when a mother beats her child, she says to the child, I wouldn't have to do this if you weren't bad. It's your fault. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is exactly what I do. Like, and so that's what's so pernicious is then you go into the world and you accept bad treatment from anyone because poor treatment, because you think one, that's what you're worth. And two, you think it's always your fault. It's just, it's such a messed up cycle. And I, I literally didn't understand it until after my book came out. I think I was 41 years old. It was like, and it was this incredible light bulb moment, but it's as simple as this, you know, if you, as a parent, you know this, if you love a child, they believe they're worthy of love. And if you abuse a child, they believe that that is what they are worthy of. And while my parents never abused me, I lived in an environment where my coaches did for many years. And that is, I spent more time with them than my parents. And so you grow up and you become an adult that believes that's just what you deserve. And you can imagine all of the bad situations you might put yourself in when that's what you think about yourself. And I agree totally. And it, and just to follow up to that, we in the UK have a, a domestic abuse epidemic at, at the moment going on. Our services can't really cope with it. It's been exacerbated by lockdown. Yeah. Do you think that the... the the, the toxic cultures that you, you talk about in gymnastics and in high-level sport, are they intensified or do they actually mirror what's going on in wider society? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think they do mirror it to some extent. You know, I think, I mean, first of all, broadly we're a culture, I'll speak for America, but I, it's probably true in more places that, you know, sort of believes uh, in a win at all costs mentality, right? The ends justify the means as long as you win, right? But we're also, we sort of believe in this, we wouldn't say it, but this like warrior mindset, I would call it, that you, you I take the issue of policing, which is of great discussion here in the United States right now. You know, I think that the police are trained to have sort of this warrior mindset and to go into the world and kind of beat down the citizens to, you know, to control them. If there are certain cultures that policing is of a guardian mindset, that you're guarding the citizens, even those who are breaking the law, And, you know, so I think that this warrior mindset infuses sport in America and the coaches are warriors there to beat winning out of these kids. And it isn't a guardianship culture that sort of guards and protects children at all costs. And so, you know, in that sense, I think it's a big issue to overcome in that it's so broad and pervasive in the culture. It affects policing, it affects romantic relationships, um, and all of these things. So, yeah, that I, 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 you know, I think it's a reflection of our orientation sort of more broadly and culturally. Thank you. I, I, I would say that it, I don't 
see that as necessarily being limited to the United States. Um, certainly, I think Aaron would probably agree with me. When I heard you use the phrase, the warrior mindset, I just kind of thought, oh, yeah, that, that was ours back at Agecroft, back at when we rode together. Yeah. You know, there was this idea of us in an eight-man boat as a war band. And, you know, we were... I, I don't know what we were going to war for. I really don't. But there, there was this idea that we were, we were going out to to fight and defeat an enemy. I do recognize that. And when you're putting it like that, yes, you know, the, the thing is, again, Aaron, I'm sure will agree with this. We had a really good time at that club. We really enjoyed the sense of camaraderie that built. And, and you know, I... I, I, th I think nobody has actually put it in a way that actually makes me realize, gosh, that possibly wasn't the most constructive way of me spending kind of like 16 hours a week of my free time. Um, I mean, I don't know that competition is bad. Like, I'm not one of those people who sort of believes in the everyone gets a medal and, you know, that sort of whole thing in youth sports. Like, I, I actually think comp some people are inherently competitive. I'm a competitive person. I felt guilty about that for a long time after coming out of gymnastics and tried to sort of beat it down in myself, but it's who I am. You have to embrace your whole self, right? But do it in a way that's not cruel towards others, you know, yeah. um, is, is, is the key. And I, I just think we have to remember these are children. Um, I mean, you were young men, but you started when you were children. In gymnastics, they're almost all children. Like, what are the values we want to teach our children? And what are what are the effective ways of raising children into whole people that it, it can't be to train them as warriors. I, I just think that seems demented <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay. So something, something I wanted to make sure we tried to touch on it and I don't, I, I want to use this word very advisedly, but kind of in the kind of Larry Nasser and athlete, a narrative, I'd like to look at possibly the positive steps going forward and the positives that we can take out of this story. So one of the things that I remember, or sort of I don't remember actually after watching Athlete A was who were the people who did the right thing? And what was it that they did that was different? Yeah. Because like you said, this went back to 1987. This, this guy was a really experienced pedophile. I mean, he was. And he started as the trainer in 1987, which was my last year on the national team, and I never encountered him. But you know, so he'd been um, involved with USA Gymnastics and and Michigan State University. There's a whole other arm of the abuse back to the late 80s. Um, and the first person came forward to report him in 1997. So you know, quite a long time before he actually was called to task. I, I do think it's also important to note that one of the important things for me in making the film was that it not just be this Larry Nasser expose, because this is, it is about him and it's not about him. There are sexual predators in the sport back as far as I can remember. Um, there were many on the coaching staff at my gym. As I told you, the national team coach Don Peters has now since been banned three athletes um, one of whom is a very close friend of mine came forward to say that he raped them 
Um, and so for me, what was important was to make this not about kind of one bad apple, which is what I think USAG wants us to believe, but that it's a culture that allowed for this man to do what he did. And that means others can as well. And I think if we don't learn from that and examine the broader culture, we are destined to repeat the same mistakes. Um, but as far as the chronology, I, it all sort of came together. Um, Rachel Den Hollander was the first um, young woman who had been a former gymnast, not a national team member, not even a high level gymnast. She read a story in the Indy Star newspaper. So this is a shout out to local journalists everywhere for breaking the story. Um, they'd written a story. The reason it's the Indy Star is USAG is in Indianapolis. Okay. And they wrote a story in 2016 about sexual, sexual abuse cases being buried at USAG. So being reported and not followed up on over 50 cases of sexual abuse. Um, they broke that story. It wasn't about Larry Nasser. It was about their neglectfulness, um, you know, in attempting to kind of drive positive PR for themselves. They buried all these cases. So Rachel read that story, um, and it had been many years since she had been abused by Nasser, but she'd been waiting and gathering evidence, and she kept journals, and she kept, you know, records from therapists and she had character witnesses to vouch for her and she'd done research on pelvic floor therapy which is what he said he did that was legal um and so when she read that piece in the indy star by three incredible reporters she came forward she called them and she said i have a story i need to tell you and she was willing to use her name and likeness which was huge to not be anonymous and that just opened the floodgates and so many young women came forward when they read that story and saw the video of Rachel telling her story. Simultaneously, there was a woman who was in the 2000 Olympics, Jamie Dancher, who didn't know Rachel, didn't know anything, who realized that she'd also been abused by Nasser. And she almost simultaneously had filed a civil suit um, as a Jane Doe. Um, but everybody quickly figured out who she was. And then, so those two stories were kind of breaking around the same time. And like I said, then the floodgates opened and all of these women came forward. 50 credible claims in just a few weeks time. At the time, USAG was still denying it. They were still defending him. I mean, we're 50, we're at 100 credible claims. And at a certain point, it could not be denied anymore, but it took that many women. It took over 50 women to be taken seriously. And the thing you have to know about Rachel, she's the most credible person you could ever meet in your life. I mean, she's incredibly smart and articulate. And like I said, she brought the receipts. Like that shouldn't be what's required to be taken seriously. You know, it, it, it shouldn't take that for to be heard, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I credit the reporters at Indy Star. I credit Rachel Den Hollander and Jamie Dancher. Um, they then got um, the, the detective assigned to Rachel's case, Andrea Munford, was the first detective that took the claim seriously. Um, all the other detectives up until that point listened to him spew his bullshit frankly, and didn't do a serious investigation, but Andrea Mumford put the victim at the center of the investigation and she very quickly got to the bottom of it and ultimately retrieved a hard drive from his garbage that had not been taken away that had tens of thousands of um, 
images, uh, child sexual images on it. So that was eventually what he was arrested for. And then finally you had the prosecutor, Angie Povolitis, who took every claim and every victim and she made sure every single woman got to speak in court if they wanted to. And those are the victim impact statements, but it was that team. And then you had the civil attorney, John Manley. So you had, it all had to come together. You needed a brave few to come forward, but you needed the right people to listen. You needed these dogged reporters. You needed the detective, the prosecutor, the civil attorney. Um, but to me, that's crazy. Like why, Every one of those people did their jobs to the nth degree, but why didn't anyone take the first young woman who came forward seriously in 97 and then 98 and then 2001 and then, you know, um, but there were a lot of people. It could have stopped with any of those, right? It, it could yeah. have, but it didn't because everybody passed the baton and took their part seriously and did everything they could. I think that's... Um that's wonderful that it happened, but it's also scary that it took, it took such a weight of individuals and it took all of the things happening at all of the right time for it all to come out. I know that in, in the UK, uh, and this, this is just in, in the wider uh, population, not focused on high performance um, athletes, but it's, it's, it's a ridiculously small, for every um, sexual um, yeah. complaints that are made to the police, it's a, it's, a, it's a tiny proportion that go forward to the point where, where, where a lot of safeguarding agencies, when they do publish statistics, are showing that, that, that men and women and children who talk about these things will simply not come forward because it won't be taken seriously. It will be, right. it will just be battered away. And that's horrifying to think. Not only will they not be taken seriously, but if they are, they'll be dragged through the mud. And mm. both Rachel and Jamie were, and that's in the film. I think, you know, you see some of what Jamie faced in social media. And I watched that unfold when the case was filed and I was astonished by the things people were saying about her. I mean, it was disgusting. Um, and Rachel, these these women risked a lot to come forward and they faced a lot, you know, and I, as part of what I, I mean, I love both Rachel and Jamie and we've become close, you know, the, the criticism that I faced in just uttering what the, you know, and just saying that this is what it's like, it was devastating, you know, it's really harrowing. And so I think we all kind of understand what you risk when you are willing to kind of come forward and say these things. And, and so I think we have an understanding, the three of us, what that's like. And I, I think Rachel wasn't naive. I was a little naive. I don't think I thought that it would be that bad. <laughs> um, but now that I've, you, you know, you learn and you learn that you're stronger than you think. And the more resistance I got, the more I knew that I had to speak louder um, because that was sort of an indication to me that if they don't want to hear it, there's something really dark happening, you know. Um, mm. But I was very protective of myself in the early days. And I, you know, I wouldn't say some of the things I'm willing to say now. I, you know, I was guarded in how I, you know, I would say, well, this is just my story. This isn't really this whole sport. It's not an indictment of the sport. I mean, in fact, it was. But I was practicing some degree of self-protection. Um, but now we all have each other, so we can, we're sort of stronger in numbers. But, you know, these women faced, it was very courageous, you know, what they did. Whether they knew what was going to happen or not, it's what they faced, and it was a lot. 
I think what you've just said is incredibly important that, that it, you, you will get pushback. You will get horrendous vitriol. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it doesn't, I mean, I'm working with some young women now who are reporting their cases to Safe Sport of Emotional and Physical Abuse, which is the governing body that accepts claims in the U.S. And some are brushed aside, you know, so they're not all taken. So it might not go the way you want, but you have to fight, I, th I think. And any good lawyer will tell a possible client that this is what you might face. You know, they will warn you and they will tell you and I will work, you know, as a friend to, to help prepare anyone, but you do, you know, it's easy to say that we all want to sort of do the right thing, but the right thing is often very difficult, you know, and it's, you know, uh, you know, you want to choose the harder right over the easier wrong, but it's hard because it's hard <laughs> because you face criticism and pushback and you sometimes lose friends. Um, you know, Rachel talks about losing her church so it's, you know, you lose real, real stuff, you know, it's not, it's not um, superficial. It is harrowing. On, on that idea, um, obviously that kind of pushback and, um, you know, concerted abuse um, that Rachel and Jamie received from members of their own gym, people they considered friends, people they'd worked with, we see very similar things happening in the UK with the Gymnasts Alliance. Um, it's not really a group, but it's it's a collection of people. This kind of like, you know, letters signed from numerous people they've trained with before and both at coach and colleague level. Yeah. Is, is this is this some kind of is this just what happens when a, a a coalition feels threatened or is it is there some kind of playbook that sort of like this is this is how we get people off our back there's not an official playbook but the strategies and tactics tend to be the same you know you discredit the person coming forward and you try all kinds of ways to do that. First, you say they're a liar. That didn't happen to me. Then you say they're just in it for money. That's a big one. I got that. Rachel got that. Jamie got that. They just want attention as if this is the kind of attention anybody wants. Um, you know, they try, or this person just doesn't understand. They're an outsider. You know, Joan Ryan, who's a reporter in America who'd written a book even before mine, was a reporter. She didn't get it because she was an outsider. Well, I was an insider, but I was a shitty gymnast. And so I didn't get it. And I was just bitter about how crappy I was. Like, they'll try anything to discredit you, um, but you just ignore it. But it's hurtful. You know, of course it's hurtful. Um, but you, you continue. So I don't think there's an official playbook, but people are sort of desperate to protect the thing that they know, you know, people don't like change. And, uh, you know, I, I, and you know what, I, I will grant that some people in the very same gym, because I, I think you're referring to Amy um, Tinkler and, and, and Jennifer probably to some extent and the, what they've gotten from their gyms. I will grant that some athletes were probably treated fairly well there. I, I will grant that just because it, didn't happen to you doesn't mean it didn't happen to others. I think more commonly though, 
those folks have been inculcated into that sort of style of coaching and accepted it as normal. And there's a bit of Stockholm syndrome that happens, you know, where you sort of revere your captor a bit. Um, You know, and your self-esteem is very much tied up in acceptance in the club. I mean, it was very hard for me, even as a 40-year-old person, to be almost excommunicated from this gymnastics community, which I considered you know, that was the, my formative years. And I was persona non grata, you know, I was just completely excommunicated from that community. Now, weirdly, I've been embraced again. Um, but that's really hard. You know, we all want a sense of connection and community. And it's part of it was part of my identity. And um, it's very difficult. And I think those people who push back, who, you know, defend their club and their experience, they're just defending their own life and their own experience. And everyone wants to remember their life as positive. You know, it's hard to let the bad stuff in, I think. So, but I will admit some people probably had exclusively positive experiences. I'm not calling those people a liar, but I don't know why they can't say, um, I'm really sorry this happened to you. I had a great experience. That should never happen to anyone. Mm. Why is that so hard? I, th- I think just to follow up on a point you made in, in, in that point, that you found it hard to accept what had happened to you as a 40-year-old, as you, you know, as a mature, intelligent, educated, uh, someone who'd seen the world, uh, was aware of it. So as a, as a child going through your teen years as a, as a gymnast or, or for a child going into gymnastics now who is reliant upon what are essentially parental figures for guidance, it's almost impossible to negotiate if it's a, if it were to recognize an abusive culture. You know, if you can't, if it's hard to recognize when you're 40 and hard to accept, then when you're eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and it's, it's all you can see, it's perfectly normalized. Yeah, you can't. And I mean, for most people I know that have ultimately had to reckon with it, they they had to because they became so broken that you just have no other alternative but to try to understand it and figure it out and rebuild yourself. And I, I do think there are some people who never kind of fall that far but are damaged <laughs> and just don't sort of fully let it in. And I couldn't be that person because then I'm not sort of I would feel not whole I would feel like I wasn't really sort of I didn't know myself you know um you know I think there's I'll use an analogy with an eating disorder like I I think that there are women who live sort of with a low-grade eating disorder all the time and they have disordered eating and they are constantly obsessing about their weight but they never kind of get to the point where it's physically dangerous but it's emotionally fraught and I didn't want to live that way like I was like I'm gonna understand this like I'm not gonna spend my whole life counting calories and thinking about the size of my butt I'm never gonna do anything in the world if that's how I spend my time and so I sort of went low to come back up to be normal but I think a lot of people sort of live in the just kind of okay zone um you know but i i think for so many of these athletes they just broke and so they had to rebuild themselves you know and come to terms with what happened at least that's the sense i get for many of the uk gymnasts who i i talked to um katherine lyons and um lisa mason and and some others like you just 
you fall apart. You know, they emotionally break you. And so you have to come to terms with it. Thank you. So, I mean, something that I, I found, I mean, not just with gymnastics, but there, there have been other kind of sporting abuse scandals involving young women. Could, could you give us some kind of insight into this, this very kind of intense and what seems to me incredibly unscientific obsession that coaches seem to have with the body fat levels and not even that, that that's kind of, that's body composition that, that there's some kind of nuance there, but just the weight of an athlete and particularly female athletes. Uh, Where it, is this coming from? It is an age old question. The obsession with weight is completely bananas. It's like we were weighed twice a day. We were yelled at if we gained a quarter pound. We were fat shamed. Food was taken away from us. Um, I think in the sport, there has been this belief in gymnastics, and I think it's true in other sports, that if you're lighter, well, in gymnastics, it, it's if you're prepubescent, you can flip higher, spin faster, that the minute you mature physically, you can't do any of those things anymore. You're too heavy, you're too curvy, you're, it's just, it's like, you know, as a judge said to me once, doing gymnastics at your weight is like doing it with a 10 pound bag of sugar strapped to your back. Like that, that you're not sort of fleet of foot and you're not sort of lean and fast. Never mind that I was starving to death. So I'm not sure how fast that makes you. I think in, um, and then you have the aesthetics of gymnastics. It's a very aesthetic, you know, right? It's a, it's a judged sport. It's not who crosses the finish line. And so then the accepted, there's that belief. And then the accepted aesthetic becomes one that's very juvenile. And it's hard to separate those two things, the aesthetic component from the belief, albeit flawed, that a smaller athlete is going to fly more better. And I, I know in track and field, I, you know, there was the young woman in the Nike Oregon project. I don't know if you read about that story who came uh, forward. Uh, it's Curry Goucher. Is that her name? What's her name? Carla, Carla Goucher. I, I've, I've bounced a few things back and forth with her on Twitter. She's a very, very impressive woman. Um, yeah. And yeah, Alberto but, Salazar is just like, he was, making comments about her weight say yeah you're firm everywhere and it's just like okay if you've got a f and and forgive me if i'm like getting this wrong but as far as i understand it once you take female athlete below about 15 percent body fat this is a very very unsustainable situation for them you know we're looking, talking about osteoporosis amenorrhea um, you know, constant fatigue, inability to adapt to training. And it just, it just seems as though there's this obsession. What should my weight be lighter? Yes. Yeah. Skinnier is better. Skinnier is better. And in, in gymnastics, it's about keep, it's not, I mean, it is amenorrhea, except you never start your period. So the idea is that you just stay a child and that you never sort of mature. Whereas that young woman, I think, had matured and then reversed it. Um, you know, you start this sport so young and, you know, that's what they're 
they don't overtly say that's what they're attempting to do, but I didn't know anyone of my cohort who menstruated at 16, 17, 18. I mean, I was 19 and in college, I had no idea, you know, what to do um, when I finally started. So it's just this, it's, it's that combination of you'll be, if you're lighter, you'll be faster and go higher. And then that creates this aesthetic that we like and give good scores to, and those become, you know, sort of symbiotic. And it doesn't matter, you know, Christy Henrich died from anorexia when she was told she was too fat. You know, the stories of anorexia are widespread in the sport, but these coaches can't let go of this idea. It's also, sorry for, for jumping in, Lou, and if you, if you were about to follow up, but it's also a mechanism of control. It is. Putting, uh, putting you on the scales twice a day and saying you're half a pound or you need to look, you know, what's, what's my ideal weight? lighter it's 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 control that's all yeah. it is it's not about the mechanics of performance it's not about physical development it's not about athletics it's not about any of the things that we associate with sport it's a mechanism of control it yeah it it comes down to that it's about control and they don't know that i don't think they're like i'm going to get control by telling this child she can't eat anything but again it's one of those standard operating procedures and behaviors that's just been accepted and then the aesthetic piece is also accepted i mean i was told by judges don't wear your hair that way it makes your face look fat or you know don't so there's this accepted body type, which is a little expanded now than when I was young. Like when I was young, it was all very sort of lean. Mary Lou Retton changed that a little. And now you see a lot more of that very athletic body type. But even for the young women coming out of sport now who have that much more athletic body type versus a Nastia Lucan, who is a very long, thin, sort of balletic body type, even those young women had very disordered eating like they, they all have incredibly low body fat i mean you say less than 15 percent. i i was two percent <laughs> like that we were expected to be in the low single digits you know three and under for 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 how long i mean was as that long as you were doing the sport so so there was no cycling of this there's no kind of like okay this is your this is your off-season weight this is your training weight this no all the time so, sorry, I, I just, I, I mean, one of the things is that um, as rowers, we kind of have this belief that we know all about cycling and cyclists have this belief that rowing doesn't matter. But oh, yeah. yeah, so it, it's, it's just this thing that, you know, I've read the books about cyclists and what they do and they go through hell in the run up to like the biggest races, they, they really absolutely starve themselves at high altitude and go for long kind of four hour training climbs. They accept that this is, this is going to be something that you do for two months of the year. And then you've got to, you've got to come back out of that because you, but the idea that they were standard operating procedure of saying to girls and you know, of girls not menstruating until their late teens incompetent it's just this is not how you this is not how you get performance to yeah no and crazy. i say all the time this approach with it which i think the coaching community and gymnastics is convinced is what's required and not only that it's it's what's required if you think there's a problem with it you're the problem so stop bothering us it it's they lose more than they gain. They lose more kids. They lose more incredible 
talented athletes and leave them by the wayside than they gain champions who, for whatever reason, kept going despite all of this, you know, and I can name them. I can, I don't even have enough fingers on my hands to name how many have fallen by the wayside because of this. Um, and outside of any of that, even if kinder, more supportive, more positive coaching didn't create winners, isn't that who we want to be? Isn't that, don't we want to raise children that, that leave the sport intact psychologically and emotionally isn't that the point of sports i mean yes. it is i, I, I just it's, no, the whole sorry. Point. it's the whole reason we put kids in sport that's what's always so striking to me is i mean not to be sports are kind of dumb like I, who cares if i can spin around on a bar i mean it's amazing and i think they're amazing but like what I want a kid to be able to do and know when she comes out of sport is that she can do anything in the world that she wants. Her being able to spin on a beam, great if it's fun, but it's not like <laughs> contributing that much to the world. That said, I don't want to downplay Like the point is that doing sports is about building self-esteem and, you know, learning from mistakes and learning from failures and being a good team member and, learning to show support and love and empathy for your team members. That's what, that's why kids do sports because it teaches you how to do that in life. <laughs> that's the whole reason. It gives you a toolbox to do other things successfully is, is that, yeah, I, I, I'm really aware that we're, we're now about 10 or 15 yeah. minutes over your hour and, and you've been incredibly generous with, with your time. And I was just, the last question that, that we usually ask is, is, you know, what, where would you like to go with rowing going forward? And we could ask you that question if if you have a, an opinion upon people moving boats while also, you know, that direction while facing in the other direction. Um, but when we talked to Tristan, he said, we we see the people with the medals at the end. We don't see the ones who are, who've fallen by the wayside. And, and the, the question that I guess that either Luna or I might ask to wrap up would be, what would a positive coaching environment look like? And how would that be taken forward into a wider life which you've already just touched upon beautifully yeah i mean it would be leadership in these governing bodies and well-educated scientific coaching staff that understand child development that treat the whole person you know and and think about the whole person whether it's a six-year-old um, that doesn't have a ton of talent but just loves the sport and gives that child just as much time and attention and love as a child that, um, you know, is 10 and poised to make the national team and possibly could make the Olympics, that in every instance we, we treat the whole child and we view sport as a springboard for life um, and not as an end in and of itself. I mean, that's what I would want. And, you know, if that's not possible in gymnastics, then do away with it is what I say. People ask me that, do you want gymnastics to go away? No, I love gymnastics. I spent the better part of my youth loving it. But if you really believe, coaching staff and leadership, that we can't create a positive environment, then you don't deserve to have these kids in your in your gym. You're not worthy of them. And too many kids and women come out like myself and struggle and suffer for many years. And that's just not okay. It's it's not okay. So, but I, it's so simple. It's just you know treat the athlete like a human being. It's not that hard. <laughs> Right, so that was 
that was a privilege to go through, but it was also for me, it was the most difficult interview I've done. I think probably for you as well. I found some of what Jen said very, very unsettling, particularly about the the aspects of, of um, <laughs> I was about to call weight management, but just like, I, I think enforced uh, disordered eating is is a better way of looking at it. A lot of things in there I found very shocking. Aaron? Yeah, I, I think we can go further. I think we can call it deliberate starvation. And it, if it had happened in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, we'd be teaching children about it now, rather than covering it up. Luckily, and thankfully, thanks to Jen's and other people's tenacity in the US, it's been brought to light and it appears to be coming to light in British gymnastics. I think one of the things that I took, and it, it was exceptionally harrowing, but one of the positives that I took from the way that Jen talked so articulately and clearly is this. In Britain, uh, and Loon and I do it because we are, we are Englishmen of a, certain, of a certain class and education, and, and, and although we joke about our regional differences, the, those things remain true. We tend to talk around things and we tend to undercut them and we tend to qualify them. And it's remarkably refreshing, albeit harrowing, to hear somebody very articulately and precisely speaking the truth about what happened. Now, I appreciate that Jennifer's had 20 uh, odd years of processing what happened to her, and she, she has come to her, her own conclusions on her story and the story of others, but it's harrowing but refreshing to hear it so bluntly put. I do also think there are some very strong, I think there's some incredibly strong negatives that we should look at, but I, I would like to emphasize the positives about sport that Jen talked about, which was the love that she started with uh, for gymnastics and sport, the joy that she had in the sport. And, and for me, or one message I, I would hope that people take from this podcast, it is the joy and excitement and exaltation and satisfaction need to be part of competition, of practice, of training. And this is doubly true um, for anyone under the age of 18, anyone under the age of 21. And really, it should be a warning sign for all concerned, coaches, athletes, um, the loved ones of athletes, that when joy starts to be missing, when exaltation and excitement in sport starts to be missing, something is going wrong. At that point, you need to take a step back and decide why are you doing this and is it really worth it? I think so. I think that Jen made the point that it's very difficult when you enter a sport so young and the behaviours are normalised to, to have the wherewithal and the clarity and the perspective to be able to decide that that is the case. And that really comes down to the negatives that you touched upon. These systems and the people who run them off can be wonderful and empowering or they can be abusive and destructive and unfortunately in Jen's case in the case of, of athletes in America and also athletes in Britain they have been abusive and destructive and we should stop giving credence and power to these people who perpetuate these ideologies and these behaviours 
there is a tendency in the media and there's a tendency in the way that these things are reported to talk about predatory behaviors, these people as predators. A tiger in India is a predator and it is a majestic animal. A golden eagle in the Scottish Highlands is a majestic soaring animal. These people are not majestic, powerful beings. They are sad, sordid individuals who get their kicks from controlling other people. And they have no place in sport and they have no place in our wider society. As Lewin said very clearly and candidly, we get into sport because of the way it makes us feel and the way that it makes us react to the world. Lewin made the point about physicality being the root of sport and the joy in physicality. And an American poet called Walt Whitman, I believe, talked about singing the body electric. He was talking about the joy of physicality, the joy of movement. And if you've ever smacked a boat down a river with your friends and had a good outing, or you've been for a run and it's been one of those ones where you floated along the ground effortlessly, or you're a gymnast and you, you've nailed something on the parallel bars or on the beam, or you're even a footballer who's caught it sweetly on the half volley, you know exactly what that feels like. And when we are children, we, we do not start with this idea of a gold medal. We start with the joy of movement. Indeed. Um, but far be it for me to sort of possibly end on, on a negative note, but, but one thing that speaking to Jen and listening to her story about coaches who were allegedly at the top of their game was the sheer lack of understanding they seemed to show. And the way they covered this up was a one-dimensional approach to driving athletes harder, making them eat less or, or, or preventing them from eating any more, just an unthinking and cruel approach that was not based around the needs of or what would advance that athlete, but was simply a template forced upon individuals and individuals who in this case were little girls we, we we need to talk about this again and again and again we're talking about little girls here this is this has been very very kind of eye-opening for me because this comes back to what tristan said uh, a couple of podcasts ago that a lot of abusive co coaching comes from incompetence and these abusive environments are almost there to cover up inability and the inability perpetuates the abuse. The abuse covers up the inability. And Larry Nasser was an example of that. Larry Nasser was a, was a sordid, disgraceful man who was able to operate the way he did because he was in a truly sordid environment one of the characteristics of that environment was that people weren't happy to be there. They felt like they should be there. And I, I think anybody should realize that such an environment will lead to very negative outcomes. The bottom line is in any sport or anything you do in life, if you love it, do it. If you don't love it, don't do it anymore. Indeed. Well, I think we'd better leave it there. Indeed. Straight side holding, south side out.